The most popular spectator sport in the late 1800s drew thousands of fans, had celebrity stars, performance-enhancing drugs, athletes crossing the color barrier, and the sport was competitive walking. Welcome to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell, and I'm joined by author Matthew Algio, author of Pedestrianism, When Watching People Walk Was America's Favorite Spectator Sport. Matthew, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be with you. So what drew you to this topic? Well, I was actually researching another topic about, oh, geez, it's almost 10 years ago. I wrote a book about the 1943 Steagles. This was a football team in 1943. The NFL was so short of players, they had to merge two teams. They merged the Steelers and the Eagles, and they became the Steagles for a season. The team was, you know, kind of a team of misfits. There was a quarterback that was deaf in one ear. The wide receiver was blind in one eye, that sort of thing. But while I was researching that book, I started looking into the history of spectator sports in the United States. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of pedestrianism. In the late 19th century, specifically, we're talking really the 1870s, the 1880s, these competitive walking matches, and they'd be held inside, indoors, like in an arena. They'd sketch out a maybe one-sixth-mile track on the floor of the arena, and the matches would last up to six days to see who could walk the farthest. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of it when I was researching this other book. And so uh, a couple years ago, I was really fishing around for something to write about, and I remembered this idea of competitive walking, and that's how the book began. So how did competitive walking or pedestrianism become a sport? It's really interesting. You know, the short answer for why pedestrianism was popular is that there really wasn't much else to do in the <laughs> 1870s and 1880s. You have a period of really phenomenal economic growth in the United States and really a period of rapid industrialization, rapid urbanization, millions of people moving into the cities. And there really wasn't much for the average person to do for a nickel or a dime for entertainment. And so these competitive walking matches, which started in the 1870s kind of as a lark almost between guys who could see who could, who could walk the farthest in a day, and they uh, would charge people 10 cents to come see them walk in these arenas. And then it just kind of grew from there into these six-day spectacles where people would come from all over to come watch these guys walk in circles for days at a time. So who was Edward Weston? Edward Weston, he was the first and really most famous walker of the age. He really got the ball rolling. It was Weston who, in 1861, uh, after the presidential election, he had, he had made a wager with a friend that Abraham Lincoln would lose the presidential election. Of course, Lincoln wins the election in 1860, and the, the loser of this wager had to walk from Boston to Washington in 10 days. And so Weston, uh, he fulfilled the terms of this wager after he lost, and he walked from Boston to Washington in 10 days. And it caused such a sensation up and down the country. And, of course, this is a very interesting time in American history where the country is about to go to war. And so by walking from Boston to Washington, Weston was really kind of a unifying force in the country at a time when the country was really bitterly divided. And so he became very famous. And after the war, in 1865, Weston started staging these walking exhibitions where he'd try to walk, say, 100 miles in 24 hours, that sort of thing. And that's how Weston became the most famous walker in America after the Civil War. What was the story with other sports in the United States at that time, boxing or baseball? Wasn't that more popular? It was really kind of an interesting time for spectator sports. They weren't very respectable, to be honest. 
The most popular spectator sport at the time, right after the Civil War, probably was boxing. But boxing was illegal in most places. Baseball was really in its infancy, and it kind of had a reputation as not a gentleman's game. It was regarded as sort of a, a game for toughs, not something you would take the family to, that sort of thing. Baseball really had its own scandals, too. There were a lot of gambling scandals. It had a very bad reputation. Baseball didn't really get going until the 1870s. In 1876, the uh, National League was formed, and this was the first attempt to really sort of codify and have a manageable baseball league. And it still took, even then, it wasn't really until the 1880s that the baseball really started to take off. And so there was a void. There was really a void in spectator sports. And competitive walking matches kind of filled that void for a time in the 1870s and 1880s. Who was Daniel O'Leary? Daniel O'Leary, he was an Irish immigrant. He uh, was originally from Ireland. He moved to Chicago, like so many millions of immigrants. And he saw what Edward Weston was doing after the Civil War. Weston, I mentioned earlier, was staging these walking exhibitions where he would attempt to walk, say, 100 miles in 24 hours and charge people 10 cents apiece to come watch him try. And O'Leary thought, well, I could do that too. And so O'Leary began staging his own walking exhibitions, and eventually he became a, a great competitor to Edward Weston. He challenged Weston eventually to a six-day walking match. Whoever would walk the farthest in six days would be declared the winner. This would have been about 1876, 1877. And O'Leary actually defeated Weston and became the world's champion pedestrian. At least that's what he called himself. There wasn't a whole lot of competition for the title at the time. And it's also worth noting that six days was as long as a pedestrian match could go because of laws that banned public amusements on the Sabbath. You couldn't walk on Sunday competitively. So the matches would begin right after midnight, Sunday night, Monday morning, and then continue right up until midnight, Saturday night, Sunday morning, the following Saturday night. So six days was as long as a match could go. So how far would they walk over six days? You know, really at, their, at the height of the sport, these guys could walk easily 100 miles a day. So then you're looking at up to 600 miles a week. I mean, it was pretty phenomenal, the distances that they covered. And even today, some of these records are, are really hard to believe. But from what we know, you know, I mean, obviously there were some problems in record keeping, and you couldn't be sure that the distances were always accurate. But they really stand the test of time. Some of these records, these guys would walk, you know, 600 to 650 miles in a week. It was really amazing. So they would walk the equivalent of about 20 to 24 marathons, you know, over a, a six-day period of time? Yeah, and really the, the key to the sport was coping with sleep deprivation. I mean, these guys would stay in motion 20 to 22 hours a day. I, I go into the book, I, I talk a little bit about kind of sleep deprivation and the effects it has, but also how some people are able to sleep just in really small spurts throughout the day. Most of us are monophasic sleepers. We just sleep once during the day. But these guys would be polyphasic sleepers. They could sleep for little spurts of 20 to 30 minutes several times a day. And that's how they succeeded at the sport, really. It was guys who could put up with the least amount of sleep were really well suited to the sport. So health-wise, how did they hold up kind of walking 500, 600 miles in six days? Yeah, we think of walking, and it's not a very strenuous activity. But because of the sheer amount of time these guys spent on their feet, it would have a very deleterious effect on their health often. 
and you hear stories of guys who suffered strokes in their 30s and 40s because of what they put their bodies through. Having said that, the two walkers that we've talked about, Weston and O'Leary, both lived a very long lives into their late 80s and early 90s and were walking really right up till the end. And so for some of the guys, it really wasn't that bad. But for some walkers, it really took a punishing toll on their body. This is ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell, and we're joined by author Matthew Algio, author of the book Pedestrianism. So they'd get thousands of people to come to see these folks just walk. How did this turn into a British versus U.S. rivalry? Well, it's funny. Weston, actually, after he lost to O'Leary around 1876, he decided to take his act to the U.K., and he went to London and staged walking exhibitions there and was quite successful and defeated some of the most famous athletes that the United Kingdom had to offer at the time. And so, really, the U.K. sort of got, you know, their feathers were ruffled a little bit, and they decided that we really need to find a great walker to compete with these Americans who are coming here and defeating us. And so they staged several big walking exhibitions in the U.K. and found a guy named Charles Rowell. He was a rower, I believe, at Cambridge it was, and he turned out to be the best walker in the U.K., and he became sort of the emissary for the British when they would walk against the Americans. We have a very easy relationship with the British right now, but it's hard to remember, you know, this is only you know, 60 years or so after the, the War of 1812. I mean, American-British relations were not really that great at this point in history, and so there was a, there was a real sharp competition between the two countries, and it manifested itself in these great walking exhibitions where... Rao would walk for the U.K., and O'Leary and Weston would walk for the United States, and they would have these six-day matches to determine the world champion pedestrian. And on both sides of the Atlantic, people paid very close attention to these races to see who would have the better walkers. Did anyone consider running? Yes. And as I explain in the book, as the sport went on, it became harder and harder to police walking. The general definition of walking was heel and toe, that at least one part of the foot had to be on the ground at all times. Of course, to make sure that this happened, you needed a team of judges to watch these guys all the time. And as the races became longer and longer, it became more and more difficult to police this, to make sure that somebody always had a part of their body on the ground at all times. And so eventually it kind of morphed into what they call go-as-you-please races, where you could run. You could run, walk, hop, skip, jump, crawl, whatever you wanted to do. And the go-as-you-please races kind of replaced the walking matches when you get into the 1880s, simply for the reason that it was much easier to officiate a match where people could run as well as walk. I found it was very interesting in reading the book and how many parallels there were to today modern athletes. So were there drug scandals in, in the walking sport? Yeah, of course, there was no like governing body. There was no commissioner for competitive walking, that sort of thing. And so the sport sort of had to govern itself, and it really did a very bad job of it, frankly. In, in the 1870s, when Weston, who we mentioned earlier, he went to England to compete, he was found to be chewing coca leaves to keep him awake while he was on the track, and this caused quite a scandal. And he later admitted that he had, but said he'd only done it that once, and it didn't really work anyway. So it was really a lot like you hear in you know, some of the steroid scandals in professional sports sports today, but there was nothing to be done about it. And this was one of the reasons that competitive walking faded away in the 1880s as Major League Baseball became much more popular. Major League Baseball had a governing board, somebody who could be in charge of uh, handing out punishment in case people cheated, that sort of thing. 
and repetitive walking didn't have anything like that. And so when there were scandals like chewing coca leaves, there was nobody to really police the sport the way they could police baseball, that sort of thing. It, it really hurt public interest in the sport. How about Frank Hart? Was he the Jackie Robinson of pedestrianism? Yes, Frank Hart was the first great African-American pedestrian, and he was a very popular pedestrian at the time. You know, pedestrianism was interesting. It, it was a wide-open sport. I mean, I talk about how it wasn't really, wasn't really regulated. Well, the, the positive side of that is that it was open to anybody, and there were a lot of African-American athletes who participated in pedestrian. There were female pedestrians. So pedestrianism opened the door in some way to, you know, underrepresented groups like African-Americans and women at the time when they weren't really representative and represented in popular sports and popular entertainment. And there were even trading cards. Yes, yes, trading cards were very popular at the time. They were inserted into tobacco products, unfortunately. (laughs) This was a good way to get children interested in tobacco. But the pedestrians were featured on some of the very first trading cards that were issued in the late 1870s and early 1880s, which is another sign of just how popular the sport was. I found it very interesting. So the very first sport in what was the very first Madison Square Garden was a walking match, correct? Yeah. Madison Square Garden was first built, actually, by P.T. Barnum, who called it his Grand Roman Hippodrome. And it wasn't really Grand or Roman. I guess it was a hippodrome. It was an open-air arena that was in New York near Madison Square, course we still call the the arena Madison Square Garden. This is about the fourth version of it I think we're on right now and it's nowhere near Madison Square anymore. But yeah, Madison Square Garden was really one of the first great sporting venues to be built in the United States. This would be about 1876 that the first Madison Square Garden opened and eventually a roof was put on it. Electric lights were installed which was quite an innovation in 1879-1880 and it was in this Madison Square Garden that some of the very first and most famous foot races, pedestrian matches were held. So how did the sport die? Well, as I mentioned earlier, there were problems with policing the sport. There was corruption, but really what killed it was gambling. You could gamble on anything at the time. You could gamble on who would finish second, third, fourth, who would be last, who would who would be in third place at the end of the second day, who will be in last place at the end of the first day. Anything you could imagine the gamblers would take wagers on. And what would happen is they would get in cahoots with some of the walkers, and the walkers would agree to maybe drop out of the race at a certain time, and then the gamblers would uh, collect on the bets they had made about that. And so it really killed interest in the sport. Also, baseball, which we mentioned, really wasn't very organized until the 1880s. By 1883, 1884, the National League had become really established. I think there were six or seven teams at the time, and most of those teams are actually still around today. And so baseball became very popular alternative for spectators to go see. So it was a combination of, of gambling, of public confidence in the sport declining, while the popularity of other sports got increased. That led to the demise of pedestrianism. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. A very fascinating, wonderful book, Pedestrianism, When Watching People Walk, was America's favorite spectator sport. Matthew Algio is the author. Matthew, thank you for being on the show today. <laughs> 